Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ore Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last year, oil and gas prices soared across Europe, and that weaponization of energy by Russia was bound to cost lives. Our data team finds that our grim prediction of tens of thousands of needless deaths was correct. And before Pematsyedin, there were no feature films in the Tibetan language. Tibet had no cameramen, no actors, no directors before him. Our obituaries editor looks back on a life spent bringing a Tibetan's unhurried, thoughtful gaze to the big screen. First up, though. There's a lot of talk lately, not least in the pages of The Economist, about peak China. Last year, for example, the country's population dropped a bit for the first time in 80 years. But what about the peak of China's military power? Just how dominant might it become and when? So in the last few months, some American scholars have made the argument that China's relative power is peaking because the economy is now slowing, its population is shrinking, it's facing a local government debt crisis and various other problems on the domestic and international front. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. So they argue that this might make an attack on Taiwan more likely in the near term because Xi Jinping might perceive that his power relative to the United States is actually going to be eroded over the next few years. But if you look at the numbers, there's a lot of evidence to show that in military terms, at least, Chinese power is far from peaking. Well, let's talk through the numbers then. Well, if you consider China's defense budget, that's a pretty good place to start. That has risen by an average of over 9% annually since the late 1990s, when Chinese leaders launched a very ambitious military modernization scheme. But obviously, as China's economy slows, increasing defense spending at that kind of rate is going to be a lot harder. This year, China's official military budget is projected to be around $224 billion, which is second only to America's. America's is still about four times larger. But that still represents an increase of about 7.2%, which is roughly in line with China's forecast rate of nominal GDP growth for this year. And if Xi Jinping can maintain that kind of growth in defense spending, then based on current IMF GDP forecasts, Chinese annual military spending will still be a lot smaller than America's by around 2030, but China will narrow the gap substantially by the end of the decade. But defense spending is not the same thing as defense capability. There's a lot more to it than just throwing money at the problem. Yes, that's right. You've got to look at a whole bunch of different factors. But I think in in China's case, one very useful indicator is its navy. 
because that would play a lead role in any operation to attack Taiwan. It would play a lead role in any operation to project power globally. It's very expensive to build ships. And it's also possible to compare China's shipbuilding plans for a fairly long period of time with America's because America makes those public well in advance. So what does that comparison then bear out? So China's Navy has expanded dramatically over the last two decades, but it does still fall short of Xi Jinping's needs in several key ways. And one in particular is that it doesn't have enough large amphibious ships to guarantee a successful invasion of Taiwan. Now that is going to change. So the Pentagon currently estimates that China has about 340 what it calls battle force vessels, which are basically ones that can contribute to combat. Now that number is likely to reach around 440 by 2030, according to the Pentagon. And among those new ships will be probably about a dozen or more large amphibious ships of the kind that will be critical to any attack on Taiwan. And so let's make that comparison with America then. How does China's Navy stack up in that regard? So America's Navy has a battle force of 296 ships, which is about half what it had at its peak during the Cold War. And rather than growing over the next few years, it actually expects that number to drop a bit. Now, after 2030, America might start to narrow the gap a bit with China, but there are a lot of factors that could make that difficult to achieve even by 2040. Those include budget constraints, potential political changes, a lot of other things. And of course, a very important point is that while China can focus its military buildup on Taiwan, America has to maintain a global presence. Right. So both defense spending numbers of ships, they're they're reasonable proxies, I suppose. But we've also seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine that better equipment and numbers to begin with don't necessarily give you a picture of what outcomes might be. How does China stack up when it comes to being able to use all that stuff? Well, not great. I mean, this is definitely a weak point, if not the biggest weak point in the Chinese Navy and the Chinese military overall. Their operational capacity comes down to a large extent to experience. And that's an area in which they'll really struggle to match America for many years to come, if not decades. China has not been to war since 1979. America has, for better or worse, been involved in a number of conflicts over the last few decades. And of course, China needs a lot of time just to to learn to use effectively all of this fancy new naval equipment that it's building. So would it be too simple to take from that then that Taiwan and its allies should feel safe for the moment? Well, there is still, of course, a risk that Xi Jinping decides to go to war before his own forces are ready. The most likely triggers for that would be Taiwan formally declaring independence or America taking steps to significantly enhance the island's status or defenses. As Xi Jinping grows older and more vulnerable to ill health, maybe political challenges. There's also the possibility that he miscalculates or just grows impatient, as Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, did, or apparently did, over Ukraine. And some see signs of such impatience already in Xi Jinping. American officials say he's ordered his armed forces to develop the capability to take Taiwan by 2027, which is the centenary of the PLA, the Chinese military. But the CIA has also said that doesn't mean that he plans to attack by then necessarily. But from what you've been saying, that seems quite an ambitious goal, 2027. Right. I think it's there as a a notional ideal. But a lot of PLA experts believe that 2027 is 
more of a kind of short-term milestone designed to maintain momentum towards the medium-term target, which is complete PLA modernization by 2035. And then they believe that Xi Jinping's ultimate goal is still, as he laid out shortly after he took power, to build what he calls a world-class fighting force by 2049, which is the centenary of communist rule. So what to make of the idea that, that's come up recently that, that war in Taiwan is kind of more proximal than, than all of that? Would, would China be able to win? <laughs> it's a very good question. A lot of war games have been done on this question, particularly on the American side, some on the Chinese side, but the results of those are generally not public. And what most of them show is that China could perhaps win a conflict over Taiwan this decade, but not for sure. The outcome would be very uncertain. And the losses on all sides, human cost, economic cost, would be absolutely devastating. So the risks are enormous. Now, the longer Xi Jinping waits, the more the military balance tips in his favor. And not just in conventional terms. The Pentagon predicts that China's nuclear arsenal will almost quadruple in size by 2035. So Chinese strategists hope that by then... Not only will their odds of winning an actual war over Taiwan have improved, but also that their relative military advantage will facilitate a peaceful solution by persuading both Taiwan and America that conflict could be too costly. So peak China proponents may be right in predicting a fraught decade ahead, but there's a lot of evidence to show that, in military terms at least, time is still on Xi Jinping's side. Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. There's more to China's military sense of itself than the sheer weight of its forces. It's also a matter of what China's civilians reckon. My favorite take on that came from my colleagues on Drum Tower, our weekly China podcast. Last week, they dissected a blockbuster Chinese film called Born to Fly and did a revealing side-by-side comparison with America's Top Gun franchise. Seriously, look it up. It's great fun. And new episodes of Drum Tower come in for a landing every Tuesday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. After Russia invaded Ukraine last February, Vladimir Putin weaponized his country's energy supplies. This is catastrophic and disastrous for people's bills. It is a cost of living crisis. The Russian president significantly cut gas exports to Europe, sending energy prices soaring in the region. The situation across Europe is serious. 36 million households have been hit by the skyrocketing prices. Tens of thousands of protesters in Germany took to the streets in response to the energy crisis and a new government... Last winter, 
the average prices of domestic electricity and gas jumped a whopping 69% and 145% respectively across the continent. Wholesale energy costs have fallen again, but we are now beginning to see what impact those sky-high prices had on people's lives. So with the dramatic increase in the cost of energy last winter, the fear was that people across Europe would cut back on heating their homes. Ainsley Johnston is a data correspondent for The Economist. And living in cold conditions can actually be quite dangerous. It raises the risk of cardiac and respiratory problems and can lead to higher death rate. So the repercussions of higher energy prices can be deadly. So, Ainsley, we last spoke with you in November, and back then The Economist predicted that there'd be a significant increase in deaths as a result of the higher energy costs. Here's a reminder. If we have a mild winter, the increase in deaths might be limited to only around 30,000 above the historical average, but a really harsh winter could see around 330,000 extra lives lost. So, did those predictions bear out? Unfortunately, they did. We appear to have been correct. So despite last winter being on the milder side, our data shows that expensive energy could have killed more Europeans than COVID did. To try and figure this out, we used a measure called excess deaths, which is a way of comparing the number of deaths that we saw this year with the number that we might have expected given the trends in mortality between 2015 and 2019. So across 28 European countries that we investigated, there was about 150,000 excess deaths between November last year and February this year. So that's about a 7.8% increase compared to what we would have expected. Wow. But deaths from infectious diseases like flu, for example, often peak during cold weather. Isn't it possible that that could have been a more likely cause of this increase in deaths? So that's a really important point. We can actually try and tease some of that out. So nearly 60,000 of those that died last winter were recorded as official COVID-19 deaths. The virus probably contributed to more, but it's unlikely that it can account for all of the winter surge. Because if we look back at the data from the earlier stages of the pandemic, between March 2020 and September 2022, the official COVID death count was around 80% of total excess deaths among our 28 countries. Last winter, it was only 40%. Also, as you mentioned, the weather can affect the number of deaths. But what we can see from looking at the data is that the cold snap in December in Europe was accompanied by a rise in mortality. But last winter was actually milder than the average between 2015 and 2019. So the cold alone can't be responsible for this surge in deaths. So, Ori, to try and make that a bit clearer, we have some charts on our website, economist.com, that show this relationship. Okay, so I'm looking at two line graphs. One of them is red, lots of red lines looking at excess deaths. The other one is grey underneath looking at temperature change, and both of them are charted against time, looking at the winter months. And all these faint lines, I'm going to guess there's 28 lines showing 28 different European countries. Have I read that right? Yeah, exactly. So each of the lines on that chart represents one country, and then we have an average line which represents the average for all these countries. So what we can see is with excess deaths, around the beginning of November, the trend in deaths looked roughly the same as what we might be expecting in previous years. 
But as we get into later November and into December, there's a rise in the number of excess deaths, which then comes back down again around mid-January to about the level we would expect in previous years. If we compare that excess death chart to the temperature chart, we can see the most excess deaths happen when the temperature is colder than we would have expected, which is in line with what we were just discussing. What you can also see is the official COVID-19 death count. So that's a grey dotted line which stays below the average deaths line on the chart. And you can see that was relatively stable throughout the winter and is much lower than the excess death count. COVID-19 really doesn't account for a lot of the deaths that we saw this winter. Okay, so the data shows that there were more excess deaths than expected this winter, especially in the coldest bits of the winter, like December. And if we've ruled out COVID and we've ruled out the extreme cold, does that mean that this is definitely due to higher energy prices? So that's in some ways a bit of a difficult question to answer. The impact of high energy prices is not really as easy to count as, say, the impact of COVID. High energy prices is not something that appears on death certificates. So to figure out whether high energy prices had an effect, we had to sort of look for clues. One clue you can see in the second chart of our graphic detail section. Okay, so we're looking at another chart here. There's lots of bubbles representing different countries. The bottom axis is energy prices, and up on the left we have excess deaths. So what are we looking at here? So what we can see here is that countries that had the highest energy prices this winter, so that's places like Germany and Britain, had the most excess deaths. So they had far more deaths than we would have expected given previous years. Whereas other countries like Hungary and Poland, where energy prices were actually a lot lower, they saw really no excess deaths this winter. The number of deaths they saw was about what we would have expected. Ah, so there's the smoking gun. So almost. It's hard sometimes to really be able to prove for sure that energy prices were the cause of these excess deaths. But if we do some fancy statistical modelling to try and disentangle the effect of energy prices from COVID and temperature changes, we find that energy prices do seem to be very important in predicting the number of excess deaths. We estimate that a price rise of around 10 cents per kilowatt hour, that's around 30% of last winter's electricity price, is related to an increase in a country's weekly mortality of around 2.2%. So this is using a model that accounts for a country's demographics, the number of COVID deaths before last winter, and also the historic underreporting of those deaths. We also made a model using the absolute price, the price accounting for each country's income, and also price changes. If electricity last winter had cost the same as it did in 2020, our model would have expected 68,000 fewer deaths across Europe, a decline of 3.6%. Okay, but Ainsley... Many European governments did actually try to mitigate the worst effects of Russia's cut to energy supplies. Did they work? Were their efforts in vain? Energy prices would have been a lot higher had governments not come in to put on price caps or reduce taxes on energy. Our model finds that these subsidies probably saved about 26,000 lives. But what's important to note here is that although government interventions in Europe will lower prices in Europe, this actually might increase demand for power and cause problems elsewhere in the world. So while they may have saved lives in Europe, they may have cost lives elsewhere. But what is clear is that Mr. Putin's energy weapon was deadly this winter. 
Ainsley, if our listeners want to take a look at these graphs themselves, how do they do that? So you'll find them in the graphic detail section of The Economist website. And listeners who don't currently subscribe can take advantage of a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. Ainsley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori. We're always trying to improve our podcasts and we'd like your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. Please do us a huge favor and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence survey. The films of Pemet Siaden, who was the founder and builder of Tibetan cinema, are famous for the slowness with which they proceed. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. In his film Thalo, for example, the shepherd is shown for 12 minutes, simply sitting among the mountains, among his sheep. He is very tidy and the scene around him is immense. This is what, in cinematic terms, is known as the long take. Pema Sierum was not interested, really, in the emotions of the shepherd or the look of his face as he recited the works of Chairman Mao. He was interested in the whole context in which he sat, the whole environment of the person. This, he said, was the Tibetan way of looking at things. Visitors to the country often noticed that Tibetans would spend a long time just gazing at one object, whether it was a distant peak or a bowl or leaves. They could sit quite happily like this for a long time. It was extremely important for him to get this Tibetan point of view into cinema. It was a long time, indeed probably forever, that Tibet had not been truly represented on film. There were Western movies about it, which made it out to be a sort of Shangri-La of marvellous temples and prayer flags and snow-capped peaks. Then there was the Chinese view of it, which made it out to be a land of barbarians and serfs, primitive people, who had to be civilised by China. Neither of these, of course, was true. He wanted to show the real country with the real people, and he wanted his characters not only to be Tibetan, but to speak Tibetan throughout and to have a Tibetan way of thinking. He chose very simple themes for his stories, just ordinary life of ordinary people in Tibet, how they would struggle to look after their herds or get papers, chance meetings or journeys on the road were often the themes of his films. What was not simple was the actual making of them, because Tibet had no cinematic industry at all. It had therefore no cinematographers, no sound recordists, no set designers. It had actors, they were mostly actors though for the stage. And so he had to start from scratch. 
The other problem he had to deal with, though, was a more difficult and pervasive one, and that was the overriding influence of China. Tibet had been occupied since 1951 by the Han Chinese, and they ran the place. They also censored all films and kept religion and cultural expression very much under their thumb. He had to submit all his scripts for review. He decided, however, that he could work within this system, first of all because he was so fluent in Chinese, but also because he very carefully found ways to get round the censors. He was careful which subjects he chose. For example, he never mentioned the Dalai Lama. He kept Chinese presence in Tibet more or less invisible. You would just see a shop sign here, or perhaps a Chinese news bulletin being watched in a house. That sort of thing, very innocuous. Some of his films did deal with national directives. For example, Thalo was about the need to get registration papers to get an ID card. And another film called Balloon was about an unexpected pregnancy which threatened to violate the one-child policy that was then the rule in China. But he didn't criticize these policies. He was very careful with how he treated them. A lot of his acceptance of the difficulties of working under the Chinese yoke had come from his training in Buddhism. He'd been brought up by his grandfather, who was a Buddhist monk. His parents were nomadic herdsmen, so they were not at home a lot of the time. And his grandfather made him, after school every day, copy out pages of the Buddhist scriptures, which really instilled in him a great respect and love for Buddhism. The teachings of Buddhism suffuse those films as they do the whole culture of Tibet. And what he stressed in them, particularly, was that the doctrine of impermanence. Life was brief; everything would pass. And what you wanted to train yourself in was the practice of detachment, detaching yourself from yourself, so that things could happen to your body, and you were almost totally removed from them. He'd actually had very early training in it, not only from his grandfather and the scriptures, but because he'd often gone up alone in the mountains as a boy to herd sheep, and he had sat up there feeling very lonely, but also cultivating that feeling of detachment among the mountains, that feeling of being able to look very long and inwardly and carefully at everything around him. But not being involved, not getting his emotions involved in the situation, not letting them get the better of him. Anne Rowe on Pema Tsieden, who's died aged 53. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alize Jean Baptiste. 
Kevin Kaners, Barkley Bram, and Sarah Larniuk, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa and Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.